Welcome to the Zeitgeist 19 curated podcast, exploring the spirit of now through the lens of art and sustainability. Your hosts are Farah Piria and Elizabeth Zhovkova. We have the honor to meet one of India's best conservation and environmental journalists, Swati Tiagarajan. Swati delves into what makes a good documentary film, tells us more about her role in the Oscar-winning documentary My Octopus Teacher, and shares the most urgent pressing issues related to biodiversity loss. We merge with her to the wild and the wilderness. We take a glimpse into the ecological philosophy guiding her efforts in conservation, encouraging us to remember that we were born wild, and where there is life, there is hope. Welcome Swati and thank you for being our guest. The reason we are here today is because we want to make sure that people remember that we were born wild and they have a strong relationship with nature that matters. So to start Swati, what made you choose the path focusing on environmental journalism and what do you think is the most important story happening right now? So um, I always grew up I was very lucky when I was a child that I was introduced to nature very young. Uh, My father's best friend was an ornithologist and he started taking me out um, into the wild from when I was about four years old. And I spent a lot of time um, in nature and very quickly realized that that was my happy place. It's the place where I felt joy, where I felt most inspired. Very young, I learned that that was my true home. Uh, that we are human animals, that I was born wild. It just, it gave me such a foundation, such a grounding, so much joy uh, to be out in wilderness. I would say it became a large part of the foundation of my personality. So growing up, um, I always wanted to be able to do something um, around nature, in nature. I couldn't imagine a life or work away from nature, you know, be boxed into an office or follow any other path or passion that didn't have nature in it. Because very, very, very young, I realized that that was my passion. So in the process of growing up in India at the time, I could very much see uh, what was happening around me in terms of India at that time was a growing nation. It was a growing economy. There was a lot of development. Uh, Things were happening, populations were growing, cities were expanding, and I could see the impact all of this had in the wild spaces around me. Um, And so I realized that there was a lot uh, in nature that needed addressing, that a lot of people needed that information to be aware of what was happening around them so they could make the right choices or vote for the right policies or demand or ask for things to happen in a particular way that, you know, the wilderness around them wouldn't dwindle and wouldn't vanish. So when I finished college, I was very lucky that at the time, uh, the company that I joined, New Delhi Television, had just started a 24-hour English news channel in India, and it was the first private news channel in India. And so when I finished college, and I did uh, film and video and communication as my master's degree in college, I had two choices in front of me. I could have gone into the film industry directly, you know, started off as an assistant or assistant producer, anything like that, worked in that field and become either a documentary filmmaker or gone into that space and still done something around nature. 
But in my experiences with everything I'd seen, I felt that there was an immediate urgency to what was actually happening around me. So I chose to go into the field of news because I really, at the time in India, except for the print media that had a few stories um, or explored a few stories that had to do with environment and nature, television hadn't gone into that in a big way at all. And India, the audience is quite a news-hungry audience. We tend to watch news and we tend to take news quite seriously. So I wanted to be able to get environment, conservation and wildlife stories on the news at prime time because I realized that if a story about an environment issue or a conservation issue or about an animal went on television at a particular time on the news, people tended to take it seriously. And it is something that you saw on a daily basis if that story was followed. So for me, that was very important. And that's why I chose uh, to become a conservation journalist because I felt like it gave me a platform and a voice uh, to address issues around us that I felt were very important, that weren't getting the time and space that they uh, should have gotten. I chose to do it. So that, so that's one part of it. In terms of what is the most, um, most important environment story day, it's hard to uh, pick one, you know, to, to break it down and go, this is the only one. As we all know, our conversations today are very much dominated by climate change. You know, we all are aware of what's happening around us. Even those of us who might deny climate change cannot deny that things are changing around us very, very quickly. You know, we see it every summer when the days get hotter. We see the wildfires that are breaking out. We see uh, droughts that are setting in. Um, every rainy season, we see massive storms and floods and hurricanes and typhoons. Every winter, we get these historic uh, sort of groundbreaking ice storms. We see it happening around us, whether we would like to sort of, you know, even if I might be a conspiracy theorist or someone who doesn't believe in climate change, I cannot deny what is happening around me, you know, with, with what I actually experience and see. So I suppose climate change has become a big, big kind of topic around the world. But I can't say that it's the only important topic because the bigger I find actually the topic is our loss of biodiversity. To me, that is probably an even bigger challenge than climate change because this loss of biodiversity is basically what it's doing is it's weakening the immune system of our planet. What I mean by that is, you know, you take the human body. We all have immune systems and we get sick or stay healthy depending upon how robust our immune system is. What is the human immune system? It's essentially the gut area with many, many, many hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of species of bacteria that keeps our gut working well, that therefore keeps us healthy. So if you take all those hundreds of thousands of species of bacteria that are found in our gut as an ecosystem and you translate it to the planet, it's the hundreds of thousands upon thousands of species in various habitat that are on this planet that keeps the planet healthy. That is the planet's immune system. So when biodiversity gets chipped away, when biodiversity vanishes because of vanishing habitat, you're weakening the planet, you're making the planet sick. So to me, that is actually the bigger challenge. Like when you look at climate change, we constantly look at carbon. We're like, oh my God, too much carbon. How do we sequester carbon? How do we remove carbon? What do we do about reducing carbon emissions? All very, very important conversations and topics, not saying it isn't important, but we are very focused on how do we reduce 
reduce the amount of carbon we're emitting? How do we sequester the excess carbon that's in the atmosphere? How do we solve this carbon issue? Because in our heads, we think if we solve this carbon issue, we are solving climate change. But the bigger picture is, let's say tomorrow that some extraordinary technology is invented and we can literally suck all the excess carbon that's there in the atmosphere out of the atmosphere. Let's say tomorrow that we switch to renewables in such a way that we enter a way of living on this planet and working on this planet where we reach net zero emissions. Forgotten is in the process of doing all of this, our dwindling biodiversity is going to be a bigger threat because it doesn't matter if we stop climate change, the loss of biodiversity on the planet will anyway weaken the biosphere that keeps you and me alive. It is the air that we breathe, it's the water that we drink, it's the food that we eat that is keeping the human animal alive on this planet. And that happens because of this biosphere around us. And the biosphere is built from biodiversity. So the loss of biodiversity to me is absolutely, singularly the most important, crucial conversation that we can be having. But of course, in tandem with climate change, this is the other problem in our way of looking at the environment or looking at wilderness or any of it that we look at, nature in general. We as humans tend to break things down into pockets. We try and label things. We try and separate things. We try and say, this is A and that is B and this is C. But nature doesn't work in silos. Nature works in an interconnected way. So to separate just one problem and say this is the problem without looking at the bigger context is also not right. So I think, yes, biodiversity to me is singularly the most important conversation we can have today. It must be had in that bigger picture of what does biodiversity loss mean? What does all this habitat loss lead to? Habitat loss, interestingly enough, also leads to climate change because the loss of biodiversity weakens a system's ability to naturally sequester carbon. So that is also a major problem. So because of this, this is something that we really need to like pay attention to. And um, this is where a lot of my work is now focused. Thank you for raising this crucial concern about the biodiversity, Swati. And uh, I absolutely agree on your comment about the holistic approach being the key to curb climate change. Um, I have rather a long question for you, so bear with me. We would like to talk about My Octopus Teacher that grew into one of the most popular documentaries of 2020 and won the Oscar for Best Documentary Feature at the 93rd Academy Awards, starring your husband and um, a naturalist and documentary filmmaker, Craig Foster, and directed by Pippa Elrich and James Reed. Um, you were the associate producer and production manager on the project. Tell us about your role in the making of this documentary. And the second part of my question is, for someone new just breaking into documentary filmmaking, what is your best advice on how to transition from making little films to producing for the big screen? Okay, so uh, my octopus teacher was a passion project that my um, husband and and uh, Pippa, like the co-director of the film, um, really worked on with James Reed. Um, I became the associate producer on this simply because in the process of the experiences that Craig had that led to then becoming this film, 
I was very involved simply because we lived together, we shared a life and I saw what he was going through. I could see what he was experiencing. Um, he'd come back from the ocean every day after spending time in the water and tell me what he saw, what he photographed, what he filmed, explained to me what was going on. So I was very involved in the process right from the beginning, even before we had decided this would become a film. It was more about understanding the great African sea forest or the kelp forest ecosystem that was right there in front of our house. And Craig was going in every day with his camera. He was documenting, he was filming, he was coming back with information and we'd talk about it every day. Then a few years into that process, after he'd even had the relationship with the octopus is when we realized that we had all of this material on hand to tell an excellent story. So then our conversations began on what would be the best way to tell the story? How would we frame the story? In what context would we put it? How would we tell it? Would it be a story we would tell with a conservation message embedded? Would it be a pure story that we would tell about a man's relationship with an octopus? Would it be a natural history film just purely on the octopus? And ultimately we decided with Pippa's help that the most compelling story was to just tell Craig's story which is his challenges, things that he went through and how nature transformed it for him in this beautiful relationship that he developed with this incredible wild octopus who became his teacher. So that's how I became the associate producer on the film because I was sort of linked with everything that was happening right from the beginning. I couldn't take a bigger role in terms of directing the film with Craig or editing or anything like that because when your husband's the subject of a film and he's been so much a part of everything that's happening, you don't have that objectivity with which to go into that story and do justice to it. Because you are so close to everything that's happening, it's very hard to figure out what are the important things, what are not important, how do I tell it, what do I strip away from the story to make it more powerful, how do we get this across in the best possible way. So Pippa had that ability to step in have that little bit of distance, at the same time be incredibly sensitive uh, to, to the actual story and what was happening. So, you know, we, th this is how the flow of the film went. And then James stepped in with that wonderful interview with Craig, which became the backbone um, of the film. And it all just worked beautifully. So that's how the film um, ended up getting made. And I was the production manager also simply because I was so familiar with everything that was happening to organize the shoots or to set up things or to help Craig and Pippa with 101 things. It was just natural and it just happened that way. So having said that, it's hard for me to have any kind of concrete advice to say that there is some kind of formula that people can follow to become documentary filmmakers or popular documentary filmmakers, because there isn't. Every single person will find that they will have their own journey in this process. There's only two things I will say that are intrinsic to this process. The one is it has to be your passion. It cannot be something you do because it's, it's in the momentary, it's a fad or it's a momentary interest or it's something that you think you want to do to achieve fame. All of that is irrelevant, secondary, and actually doesn't help you. It has to be a true passion. You have to find a story that speaks to you in such a deep, intrinsic way that you feel like if you don't give that story voice, your life is wasted. So it has to be a pure passion from your heart. It has to be authentic. It has to have integrity. And it has to be something that resonates very strongly with you so that you can tell that story in the best possible way. And when you have a good story and you can tell that story well, and there is an authenticity to it, 
people will respond to that story because they will then find something in that that draws them in. That is key. So that I would say is number one. Number two is actually understanding that there are no rules and there is no way to replicate something. Even us, just because we made My Octopus Teacher and it won an Oscar, it doesn't mean that tomorrow we could make another film that would be anywhere close to as popular or win an Oscar. You know what I mean? Because it could be so many hundreds of factors come into play. Documentary filmmaking is one of the most subjective fields you can enter. You know, when you tell a story, some people will love that story. Some people will hate that story. Some people will find it a wasted story. Some people will find it the most defining story of a generation. Some people will say, you know, it's too privileged or too this or too that. Other people will say it changed my life. I mean, you get the gamut of uh, responses and experiences from people when they watch a story. There is no story that's going to have everybody who watches it love it. Your luck is when the majority who watch it love it, and then it gets the kind of momentum that my octopus teacher did and, and you know appeals in the way that it did and wins all of these awards. But you as a filmmaker, you as a storyteller, cannot tie in your passion and your ability to do this in anticipation of what the audience might say do react or whether it will win awards or not. Because that is what I mean about authenticity. You just have to tell the story that is most true to you, the story that appeals the most to you, the story that you find incredibly important. So that's the driving force, I would say, that needs to be there in, in order to, to, to make a documentary film and tell a story. On the, the, the other side is how do you kind of build it, I suppose, or become a filmmaker, or where do you get the opportunity to do this? Again, that's just such a difficult, um, question to actually answer because again it's one of those things where you know when we started making this film to be very honest nobody was interested we were sitting in some little corner in Cape Town and it's a story that compelled us to tell it it was very much into the process of almost the third or fourth version of its edit that even we had you know that wonderful company off the fence come on board and go we'll try and help you market it and Ellen uh, Windermith our executive producer, extraordinarily experienced, had a relationship with Craig for a long time because they'd done other films together. She guided us as well in the process. And, you know, so it was organic that way. But it didn't mean that it was guaranteed. She took a chance and said, I'll help you try and market this. It didn't mean it was guaranteed that someone would actually buy or take or even, you know, put the film on air. In fact, our first attempt at getting, I think, to Netflix or trying to get someone interested People actually weren't interested. And then we had Sarah Edelson from Netflix, again, phenomenal, who was the producer on the film, who saw a version of it and was really inspired by it. And then she came on board and helped us refine it and make it even better. And that's how Netflix got involved. Like the first time, actually, we got rejected by Netflix. And it took a Sarah in Netflix to say, yes. Yeah. So, you know, this is what I mean by two people not liking something and one person liking it and pushing it for you. For, so for, for most filmmakers, I would say your biggest battle is finding the subject, finding your passion, telling the story. Yes, budget is a massive, massive concern. If you're making a film, it costs a lot of money. Um, I don't, there are many, I suppose, um, avenues through which you could do it in terms of crowdfunding, maybe, or just have an excellent pitch written. And if your story is strong enough, try and find someone who might fund it for you. Um, 
or you know i don't know you end up making it on a shoestring budget it takes you years because you're putting your own money into it and then once that's done maybe you know i think one a good way to go is to to enter it in as many festivals as possible because festivals get a certain kind of audience festivals are experienced in a certain kind of way of looking at documentary films um have a way of in their own way of marketing those films because you know the 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 group that normally looks or looks to source films um you know are involved in these festival circuits so that's that's one way to go because if you get an audience reacting positively at a festival and you get the good reviews from the critics from those festivals and it does well in a couple of festivals then your ability to leverage that into more funding or marketing or getting it out is so much better but it is unfortunately a much more difficult space than fiction in a sense because fiction has a very very established industry it has a way that it functions um there is a notion that everybody feels that a, a fiction film which is like your hollywood or your bollywood or wherever it is that you're from automatically has a wider audience automatically gets more budgets automatically gets a bigger release automatically gets out there so i feel like there's this kind of stepchild you know evil stepmother stepchild treatment of documentary films i don't think people realize that there is a massive audience out there actually for a documentary film as long as a story is told well i don't think people mind if it's a documentary or if it's non fiction people just want to be entertained they want to learn something they want to feel something or they want to go there and get like a wonderful 2 hours of escapism that just takes them out of their lives into a space that they can escape to and come back so if you can tell your story well there shouldn't be a differentiation between the mediums of how you're telling your story but we live in a world you know that again sort of looks at certain things in a different way so it's hard to be able to tell a young filmmaker follow step a b c d and you'll get to your destination so the only thing i can say really is follow your passion stay authentic to your true voice tell the story to the best of your ability and if you have a really strong good story that you can tell in a way that appeals to a large section of audience then you're on your way so that's that's the only sort of advice i guess that i can give or that i've seen from experience yeah As we're speaking about the documentaries, a genre that has become so popular since the turn of the century and today has such a strong impact on audiences. And um in a way you covered this question but perhaps you could answer in more general terms. In your opinion, how documentary filmmaking has been evolving? What are the challenges and the opportunities in 2022? Yeah. So the one amazing thing about being in 2022 right now is even 20 years ago if you were a documentary filmmaker your avenues were super limited to where you could take these films you know if you were lucky you got it into a festival and maybe your festivals were your only platform really to get your film out there and you had certain channels that put documentary filmmaking out there but it was mainly natural history filmmaking channels you know like your national geographics and your animal planets and your discoveries um had probably a platform where if you did a natural history film um or a film on animals or whatever there was a platform but again it was limited why was it limited they selected very few films it maybe had three or four screenings before before it just vanished um and that was it today you live in a world where your ability to access information is so widespread your platforms from which you gain that information is so widespread 
your uh, your access to these platforms is so widespread that you're actually in a very good position where you have various avenues through which you can actually plug your work so as a filmmaker you know if you have a really great story like i was saying you you couldn't have crowdfunded or crowdsourced 20 years ago or even 10 years ago in the way that you can today with social media you can develop your own brand your personality your following on social media which could then potentially help you get funding or if someone approaches you and they know that you already have a following of people interested in your work you have an ability to take it to people and go see i have so many people already interested would you fund this project because this is the story that i have pitch it you know and let's say that you have the ability to make it for yourself and you've made it on your own budget you can put it online there's so much so many platforms now through which you can like do this your own youtube channel for example we couldn't have done that 10 years ago you know and um even platforms like netflix and um amazon and like these hundreds of online platforms today they're all looking for content they're all wanting more and more content content is just getting absorbed so quickly by people because people are starving and looking for content the only caveat in this would be that it has to be at a level that is good obviously now if you're just putting something together because you want to put something together because you want to be out there and it's mediocre you're not going to get the interest and the audience that you want so it all comes back down again to that passion how do you want to tell your story what are the topics that you're picking how important are they who is your audience and how you know really really um sitting down thinking about it and putting it out there but i would say in 2022 at least your your access to putting things out there and your ability to reach more people and at least pitch in various different ways is a lot more there than it was uh, than it was like a few years ago so i would say that's changed um how documentary films are being made and processed and being absorbed as well and because now you have these online platforms or even just uh websites on 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 uh, the internet you know that that put films out you also have your reaching audiences that uh you wouldn't have reached before you know you you're having a much much and today with all of us with our cell phones and our tablets and our smart apps um we can do and watch and access things on the go you know so it's it's a very different way that information and things are being consumed today and in a very different way that things are being viewed today um so i think even a tiktok platform if you take for example they really little stories that you when you which which tiktok platforms you know when they get popular whatever something that grabs people something that takes you 2 minutes out of your day makes you interested something that appeals you know so there's a lot of opportunity from that perspective so i would say that has not only changed uh the opportunity for getting documentaries out there it is most certainly changing how we tell stories it's also enhancing our ability to tell stories so we don't have to stick within a particular format or form fit into the one channel that used to show it or worry about just this one audience and therefore our story is streamlined to that so it's also given us this enormous um ability to sort of be creative and and find our voices more in uh, you know in a more original way and really push boundaries and get out there and tell those stories so i would say that that to me is like a positive trajectory that we're on uh certainly when it comes to documentary films thank you for the insightful answer swati 
uh, outside of journalism and filmmaking, you're a member of the Sea Change Projects that contributes to the long-term protection of South Africa's marine environment. We live in times with increasingly corrosive ocean conditions. What strategy that you have implemented had the greatest effect so far? So um, the Sea Change Project is a not-for-profit organization that Craig uh, co-founded with Ross Stryling. And there are uh, about nine of us who are sort of the primary, I would say, members of this organization. It's quite a lateral organization in that it's not like there's one boss on top and then you know, and everyone else falls beneath it. We have, of course, a structure in place so that things don't get out of hand and someone can keep an eye on all the projects that are happening to make sure that they all happen on time and all of it. But in general, we work beautifully as a team and we contribute to each other's work and we support uh, what each other do. Now, the Sea Change Project is, our tagline is, remember you are wild. So our core, uh, I would say, principle is deep nature connection. How do we inspire and bring people to a space where they want to have a meaningful connection with nature? Because we as a team in Sea Change are in the ocean every single day. We dive every day. We swim every day. We're in our environment every day. Our primary environment and our primary focus is the Great African Sea Forest or the kelp forest on our shores in Cape Town. And it's the preservation of this great African sea forest and its long-term conservation that we're absolutely passionate about. And ours is lived experienced storytelling. So I am not telling you a story about the great African sea forest from land where I've never experienced the wonder of that ecosystem. It is because I experienced the wonder of that ecosystem every single day by being in the water, by free diving, uh, by experiencing the cold, by not wearing a wetsuit, by living that experience in that ecosystem that I'm able to tell the stories that I am telling people. And that is the reason people also re- respond to our stories because they can feel there is an authenticity there and there is a true voice. Um, and we try and translate the joy and fulfillment and and passion that we feel being in nature. I want other people to feel it. I want to be able to share that. That to me is my primary driving force and the primary driving force of Sea Change because we truly believe at Sea Change that as cliched as it sounds, you have to love to protect, you know, and it, that love has to be organic. And the only way that love is organic is if you learn to appreciate the world around you in that special way. Not, you shouldn't, I'm not saying all ways are good. So if I tell you, save this because it gives you oxygen. Save that because this is what gives you food. Save this because this, you know, I'm always making it a transactional thing. I am telling you, save nature because nature is what's keeping you alive, which is important. People need to know that the role that nature plays and people need to understand the um, natural benefits, the socioeconomic benefits, life benefits. I'm not saying people shouldn't understand that. But fundamentally, at the end of the day, we need to want to have to save it simply because of love. Why do I say that? Because it is our only home. This is where we belong. This is who we are. We are the human animal. We are born wild. This is our home. And it's not about what it gives us or doesn't give us. Why would you not want to save your home? So how do you inspire people to come back to that very, very visceral connection that we've had as humans for hundreds of thousands of years, that all of our indigenous wisdoms has taught us over the years 
what nature is and what it means to be the human in nature you know how do we bring that indigenous voice back into our conversations how do we respect that deep indigenous knowledge uh, that allowed for the human to live for over 80,000 years in harmony with nature until we went into the agricultural practice and changed a lot of things um you know science how do you base your stories on science so it stays factual so that i'm not you know talking about things that are not true i can prove it through science but to have science balanced by the indigenous voice of saying you belong this is your space this is who you are as the human animal because really who are we as the human on this planet the planet is probably the biggest womb the umbilical cord is what comes from the planet to you and me so the, as humans we're in the longest gestation periods of our life on this planet you know and and we are so um, caught up in so many different things and we are so disconnected so many of us from nature for maybe many reasons that are not our own fault because people have hard lives people have challenging lives people are looking at how do they just survive how do they feed their child how do they put food on the table you know how do they face the day these are all enormously challenging concerns that may not give you time to spend in nature or to have that nature connection or to you know to 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 develop it but understanding that that is very important because when you have that a it gives you a sense of belonging b it gives you a sense of peace three it brings tremendous physical and spiritual healing to the human spirit to to be in nature even a single tree in your neighborhood in a city you know with the little birds and the greenery and the way it changes foliage during seasons brings you a tremendous sense of the rhythms of the earth and how you are so much a part of those rhythms of the earth so at sea change for us this is the strategy that for us is important and works for us which is trying to bring that primal connection back trying to make people understand that this disconnect from nature is a huge part of why we feel so damaged and disturbed and upset and depressed and facing a lot of the challenges of the human spirit that we face today on the planet and also the reason why we are not quite sure of we feel paralyzed when we face the challenges of climate change or biodiversity or, or you know or 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 things that are happening extinction of species we we feel panicked we feel challenged we feel helpless we don't know what to do because we are not educating ourselves and connecting to this wonderful world around us to go that actually you know what everything that i do um every decision that i make every choice that i make in the mornings are actually impacting what's happening around me and making myself feel empowered by the idea that i can make this positive hopeful choice and i can make positive hopeful change it's an incredibly empowering idea to realize that as an individual human that you have the capacity to trigger change and change for the better so at so at sea change project it's this kind of bringing people back to that deep nature connection in whatever meaningful way that they can do it and for people to understand that they are wild and that they are nature that wild places and wild things are the most precious things that we have and that um it is something that we need to preserve and regenerate simply because it is our home it is our ecosystem it is our environment and it is part of who we are thank you so much swati for this soulful and candid conversation Uh, wishing you the best of luck with your upcoming projects and can't wait to share this chat with our listeners. <laughs>